You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast or will be podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast on 3cr.org.au. Our extraordinary producer, Kelly Whitworth, has plucked another, another, shall I put it, another giant, another giant, another radical giant from the pool for us to dissect and chat with. Max Ogden, it's a pleasure to have you here in the studio. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Max, how do you spell your surname? O-G-D-E-N. Now, that's not what I call an Anglo-Saxon name, is it? Uh, it's, it's a popular name in the US, actually. Is it? It's a lot of Ogdens, but it, I think it comes from a, a little town, a little village in, in England. Originally, it was a den of hogs. A den of hogs. Hog, hog den, yeah. Hog so, den. So you can understand why they dropped the H off. Yeah, hog <laughs> den. So uh, your father wasn't a pig farmer, was he? <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you tell us a little bit about your parents? Uh, well, uh, they were both were uh, the uh, children of uh, of migrants. Uh, a very colourful person, a couple of people on Dad's side. The uh, uh, my grandmother was German, but had been uh, living in America, and uh, fascinating woman. Uh, she'd been a steward on a, on ships, and uh, and my father had been uh, grandfather had been Canadian, and they met in the US. And uh, they came to Australia, um, and uh, my grandfather was a very talented engineer, and he was um, worked all around Australia putting in uh, meat packaging uh, machinery, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and and they sort of made my father and his uh, four siblings, uh, three brothers and a sister, the eldest. Very independent. My grandmother was a really independent, fascinating woman, and uh, uh, so all the the family uh, on that side were um, not only independent, but they they had a slogan uh, that you never bought anything that you could build or make, and so they could all turn their hand to all sorts of things, and they, and they're always inventing stuff as well, particularly mm-hmm. the, the four boys. But yeah, that was their. Uh, and so, you know, I remember going to my grandmother's place when I was very young and here's this fabulous uh, big seat for a swing and one of my uncles had thought we needed that and got together and, and built it. Built it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that uh, on Dad's side and then um, 
on mum's side, yeah, three of the siblings uh, were born in England, but the rest, uh, uh, there were seven of them eventually, were born here, and she was the second youngest, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, But again, my grandfather on that side had been a... Um, uh, a meat inspector and various other things, but he spent much of his life as the window cleaner up and down Sydney Road. Right. Uh, and he became quite radical. In fact, he was radicalised before he came to Australia. Right, right. So would he have been around the time of Chummy Fleming and that crew? It's uh, possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because there was a very radical period in Melbourne, people don't understand, the yeah. 1880s and 1890s, when the uh, marvellous <laughs> Melbourne became bust Melbourne. Yeah, well, he came out here in about... 1905, I think. Yeah, there was like a big, yeah, big unemployment struggles yeah. around then. Yeah. yeah, and of course he and and my father and others uh, all got uh, were quite active in the um, unemployed workers movement in Brunswick yeah. in the 30s. Yeah, and yeah. him and my uh, grandmother, she did all the work, of course, uh, used to hold open house of a Friday night after Friday night shopping along Sydney Road, mm-hmm. and people, including my father, would flock there for a meal and, and political discussions because they're all trying to find answers uh, to the why the depression and mm-hmm. so on. And uh, and of course, eventually, he had a, a bigger reason to go there every Friday night because he got attracted <laughs> to my mother. That's right. <laughs> well, then we know it all started. Well, <laughs> Yeah, it's those free meals, you know. <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't the Salvation yeah. Army. You could have ended in a different uh, trajectory. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what year were you born, Max? Uh, April 1938. And were you born in Melbourne? Yes, yes. I've li- lived in Melbourne all my life, except for stints uh, six months in Algiers, in Algeria, six months in the US. But apart from that, I have... Oh, we'll talk about uh, that later on. Yeah. But I'm, I'm interested in your early life. What was... Um, well, you would have been a young lad. Did you remember much about the Second World War? A reasonable amount, yeah. Um, uh, just apropos of that, of course, uh, born in April uh, thir- uh, 1938, my uh, name was Neville Maxwell, uh, which my mother loved. But then um, in September of that year, of course, we had the famous or infamous yeah. uh, Neville Chamberlain deal and uh, my family being... What they were said, we're not going to call him Neville after that bastard. So, <laughs> hence I got Max ever since. <laughs> so we can, we can, we can. Uh, you can blame Adolf for your name, basically. <laughs> so, so my politi- he's responsible for a lot of things. So my politics were well set at six months. Uh, look, look I've, I've heard of, I've had of, heard of Adolf Hitler being responsible for a lot of things, but never for a, a change of your name. That's extraordinary. <laughs> All right, so you became Neville. Max, well, and then Max, right. So what, what did you remember about World War Two? Oh, well, I, a couple of things. Um, my grandfather organised for, because there was three daughters and four sons, and he organised for the three daughters, mum and her two sisters, and the kids, we were only about three or four at the time, uh, to go up and stay for quite a while, quite a few months in a a little farm he rented in Yay to get us out of the city because mm-hmm. of the time there was some sort of threats uh, from the Japanese. I can remember remember that. In fact, I was talking to my eldest cousin just recently. She was trying to because she's three or four years older than me. She remembered more of it. So I remember that. I remember also um, the rationing and the coupons mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. were 
being used at the, in those days. So, yeah. I remember all that. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading an article, must have been a few years ago, it was written by a Japanese man who I think was in his 80s and he remembers flying over Melbourne. Uh, nobody noticed that it was a Japanese plane because nobody expected it. He remembers flying over Melbourne and just looking at things and making records. Oh. And, and the, So maybe maybe that had some effect yeah. on you going to Yay. Maybe people began you know, the bombings of the submarines yeah. in uh, the submarine bombings in, in Sydney in Harbour, Sydney, yeah. the bombing of Darwin. And, yeah. Yeah, maybe your granddad knew a little bit more than most Australians at that stage. Yes, it was. Uh, mm. He was he was an old patriarch, but. Uh, you know, he, he sort of looked, looked after looked yeah. after his family very well, and uh, yeah. and of course uh, by that time he joined the Communist Party. I think. Yeah. 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 So, so what primary school did you go to in Brunswick? Uh, now, I, I by the time I was uh, three, we'd shifted to Preston, and I went to oh, Preston South. Upwardly mobile, upwardly <laughs> mobile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Preston South. Yeah. That would have been the outskirts, wouldn't it, in those days? Yes, yes. It's, uh, in fact, Dad and I. When we, when I was ki- kids, we'd go um, with his, his twenty two rifle. We'd just go just out past the gates at Reservoir to shoot rabbits. Uh, rabbit. Not even as far out as uh, Epic, uh, uh, <laughs> and camp overnight. Uh, <laughs> did, did, did you eat the underground mutton or what? Oh, now and again, but uh, we weren't very good shots. So. You weren't very good shots. <laughs> well, they're pretty fast. They're pretty fast. I've got I've got some hairs on a property I own and uh, out in the country, and uh, whew, they are fast. <laughs> So do you remember much about uh, primary school? Not a huge amount. Um, uh, I can remember, you know, the, the main teacher we had and uh, Miss Carey, uh, I recall. <laughs> uh, and, but I do remember it was pretty strict. Yeah. But one thing I do recall was um, uh, there was a polio epidemic. That's right. Uh, and... Uh, Mum kept myself and my uh, next elder sister, uh, who had just started school, uh, kept us home for about six or eight weeks uh, yeah, by agreement. Yeah. Most of the schools did that. But uh, and apart from that, I just remember some of the some of the fights and uh, starting to get interested in, in yeah. football. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up the polio epidemic because it had major consequences in this country mm. and uh, we still... Well, I think most of them have died, but we've still got people in, had people in iron lungs yes, up to a few years quite ago. Quite a few, yeah. You know, you'd go to school and you'd come back and yeah. it's, uh, everybody's kind of panicking over COVID-19, but that was huge in the 50s. Yeah. Huge, huge impact. So did you get to secondary college? I or? went to Preston Tech. Preston Tech. Uh, and... Uh, it was... A silly thing happened was that uh, I was... <clears throat> I was young, the youngest in the class from the time I started school because of the way the years operate. And so I got to Preston Tech. I did me four years there and passed everything. Not that that was a, you know, a huge achievement. Um, but I was, I did intermediate and then I was to start my apprenticeship, but I was a year too young. Well, you're 15, were you? Uh, yeah. And, uh, so the teachers advised us, advised me, mum and dad and me to, um, I'd do another year of intermediate. And, of course, we didn't know much about it, uh, so I did this bloody year, which was a waste of time, time yeah. when what they should have said was go down the road and do a fifth form at Northcote High. Yeah. But that never occurred Get to us, you know. No. So uh, yeah. so I did that silly second year and then uh, before I could start my apprenticeship. 
So what type of apprenticeship did you start? Uh, Fitter and Turner at the State Electricity Commission. All right. Now, a lot of people listening to this program, there must be at least two that are under 30, wouldn't even know what a Fitter and Turner is. What's a Fitter and Turner? (laughs) Well, um, most of my apprenticeship was turning, and that is machining metal uh, on lathes and uh, planing machines and milling machines, all all cutting metal, steel or brass, bronze and so forth. Uh, so you, that was one element of the apprenticeship, and the, in my apprenticeship, the main element. The other one was, uh, a fit of being a maintenance person. So your, your job is to, um, maintain equipment. Uh, if there's a breakdown, uh, you, uh, you then have the job to fix it or to try and keep it from breaking down. Uh, so after I finished my apprenticeship at the SEC, which was a very good apprenticeship, uh, I then left to work in the uh, private sector. I let's go back. Let's go back a step. I think a lot of listeners wouldn't even know what the SEC was. That was the State Electricity Commission. Is that correct? The State Electricity. Commission. And that was owned owned by the Victorian state government and the yeah. Victorian people. Yeah, there was the State Electricity Commission and the railways, the gas and fuel, the uh, Board of Works, and so on. They were big state instrumentalities, and one of their big contributions was like every year they would train and probably thousands of apprentices between them, um, and usually it was very good apprenticeship. And uh, then the private sector, some of the big industries like oil and the like, who hardly train any apprentices, they would then employ them after they left because uh, the, the, those big instrumentalities would encourage you to leave so they'd have room to, for more apprentices the next year. No. And I wanted to leave anyway to tr- see what it was like to work in the private sector. But, uh, of course, once uh, Kennett privatised all of those, um, uh, the, uh, the all those huge number of apprentices just collapsed because uh, the private sector's been very reluctant to spend money, uh, except in a couple of the areas. Like, to their credit, the auto industry was always committed to to training uh, a lot of apprentices but beyond that um yeah it was uh, mm. a real so the impact of kenneth's privatizations went way beyond just the fact that they sold off very valuable public assets it had an impact on training and all sorts of other things so um kenneth had as bigger impact on you as adolf had on changing your name <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, so when you got to the private sector what did you think? Did you think you'd been put into hell or, or did you fit in nicely? No, I um, – uh, well, first of all, I, uh, I quickly was elected a shop steward. Hang on, 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 hang on. How old were you? Uh, oh, 20, 21. And you were elected a shop steward? Yeah. How come? What's going on well, here? Well, the uh, – it wasn't that difficult, uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, in many workplaces. Because uh, if they were looking, for, if it was unionised and looking for a steward, the first person to put up their hand usually was, yeah, was yeah. agreed to. <laughs> uh, it wasn't exactly a job that everybody was fighting over, except in some big plants where it was, you know, where the union was really powerful. But yeah, so that was the interesting thing. So I quickly became a shop steward. I'd been active in the union all my, through my apprenticeship anyway. So when did you join uh, the union? In 1954 when I... 
So when you took up your apprenticeship, you joined the union? Actually, the following year, 1955. And what union was that? The Amalgamated Engineering Union, right. what is now the AMW. Yeah. Right. So, so the private industry you're working with, was it, was it a unionised shop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In those days, they nearly all were. Anything mm. of any size was uh, well unionised. But it was interesting. Um, one of the reasons I was interested in, in leaving uh, the public, uh, this SEC, because... It got, often got referred to as SEC, slow, easy and comfortable, oh, uh, yeah. even though I thought it was a very fine organisation and produced, you know, a very reliable electricity service. Uh, it certainly was a little bit slack mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought it would be interesting to work in, in a different uh, milieu in terms of uh, management and profit-making and the like. Um, and I found that uh, one thing I did like about the private sector is you, particularly when you're shop shooting, you've got problems to solve, you got answers very quickly. Whereas in the SEC, I, I was active in the, I wasn't a steward, but I was on the shop committee and the like towards the end of my apprenticeship. Um, if we had a problem, it would have to go through all the bureaucracy and you'd be days getting a decision back. Right. Whereas in the private sector, in, at least in those days, uh, particularly if you had the slightest threat of not not being there in the afternoon, uh, mm. you'd get a quick answer. Um, but what I've also found, in, and of course in my many years in of, as a union official and the like, uh, uh, and I hadn't realised it at the time, I hadn't looked at it, couldn't compare it, but Australian management are actually very bad. Uh, they're, they're, they rate very low in the OECD and... Uh, uh, it took me a while to wake up that I thought the, actually the SEC management were much better, even mm. though it was a bit easier going. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting experience. So how long did you last in that job? Oh, look, I went to – I went to – that's right. I worked at Sidden's Drop Forgings for a while where they made the Sim, Sid Chrome Spanners. And then there was a um, a, uh, a bit of a depression uh, – is this the 60s, is it? Yeah, 61. Yeah. Uh, unemployment actually got to 3%. This is, when the, <laughs> this is when the Communist Party helped re-elect Menzies, is that right? Well, yes, in 61, <laughs> yeah, that's right, when the, the donkey vote delivered uh, Menzies won the seat he needed. Um, yeah. So uh, Siddons, uh, um, and John Siddons at the time was managing, taking over from his father. He became later on became a, a Democrat senator. And uh, they sacked a hundred of us just by pure chance. Every uh, every uh, the eight, seven or eight shop stewards and every union activist happened to be amongst that hundred. hundred right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that's when I um, then uh, I, I helped with the unemployed workers went for a couple of months, and then I finished up getting a job at uh, CIG Equipment. But there's a little interesting backstory to that later on. I was at a, on a platform. Uh, one night at, a, at some a discussion about future work and all, and so is John Siddons. <laughs> and uh, and John Siddons had been up there talking about how it's important to uh, work and consult with your workers. workers and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I said to him, because you know, he, he'd remembered me, <laughs> and when he sat down, I said, that's great, John, yeah, all that teamwork you're talking about, mine must have dropped form because <laughs> I got dropped very quickly. Right, yeah. And he actually, to be fair, he said, look, that was a terrible thing we did. We never, ever did it again. Yeah. We felt badly about it because uh, yeah. we, we could have gone on to a shorter week, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, our sins catch up with us yeah. sooner or later. So you said, how active – you said you're a shop steward. and How active did you become in your, in your union? 
Well, I started uh, from the time I was an apprentice when we had uh, a very effective youth committee. Um, a youth committee? A youth committee. Which in were, the union? In the, in the, in the metal workers, uh, where we, would, we were active around apprentice issues such as uh, uh, more time off for learning and having the wages based on the tradesman's rate instead of on the basic wage. Um, and uh, improving, we were very active behind the Apprenticeship Commission with our reps, we would uh, be feeding them stuff. Uh, in those days, there was, it was the secretary um, uh, of the shop committee, of the youth committee in those days was John Halfpenny. Uh, and uh, it was a battle between the groupers uh, yeah, 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 yeah. and, and uh, basically the, the Eureka Youth League and and uh, mm. and the communists <laughs> yeah. every month would be these Friday night battles. Uh, well, could you explain uh, again? Uh, we must have one listener under thirty. Could you explain what a grouper is? Because most people have forgotten. And what was the Eureka, Eureka Youth League and its association with the Communist Party? Well, the Eureka Youth League was like the Young Communist League. That um, had been an actual Young Communist League in the thirties with. It, but it got banned at the same time as the communists got banned by Menzies in about 1940 or 41. And uh, so, but they, it then was reformed as the Eureka Youth League, taking the, um, the flag of the, the miners of Ballarat as, their, as our symbol and the like. Uh, and so we were the ones very active in, in the youth committee, and I joined the Eureka Youth League by then as well, as was John Halfpenny, a member, and, and a number of others. Um, and the groupers. Uh, were just really emerging, um, which was the uh, the right wing Catholic element of the Labor Party, who were determined to run anybody associated with the Communist Party out of unions. Uh, I have to be fair here and say it by no means was it all the Catholics. Many Catholics were very fine people in the unions who, who themselves strongly opposed the Santa Maria forces. Um, but uh, during those two or three years in the youth committee, uh, the young um, Catholic workers, the YCW, uh, were quite active and we'd have these, these extraordinary debates. It'd be, we, we could get 40 or 50 apprentices on a Friday night right. uh, to come along to the meetings. And it would be a battle between them and us. And, and we won nearly all the time. And, and then eventually they disappeared. Right. And the meetings were no longer nearly as interesting. No. <laughs> <laughs> and we realised then it's good to have some opposition. It is. It is. <laughs> so how long did you last in the private sector? Oh, well, I was in the private sector then for uh, quite a few years. Um, uh, until... Till, yeah, for, till 65. I, I went to, um, uh, started with CIG equipment uh, just before Christmas uh, uh, 61. And th- in those days, their plant was down um, uh, in Spencer Street, where that remand uh, yep. place is now. CIG used to be there. But they were shifting out to a brand new uh, factory in Preston, uh, which would have been. Probably the most modern light engineering uh, uh, plant in the world, brand new. Uh, and CIG made um, equipment, made uh, all sorts of uh, very high quality products, such as um, uh, um, welding equipment, uh, 
all the oxygen kind of equipment that you needed for welding and humidity cribs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was a good place to work, actually, uh, and people took a lot of pride in what they produced because it was it really had to be good quality. Uh, and they were world-class in being able to drill very small holes for the nozzles. Right. And, and uh, people would come from all over the world to see how they did it. Um, and, of course, that... Uh, there was about eight or nine hundred of us under the one roof there, very large. For a metal union, we were the largest metal union uh, place in, in the country. So we had a uh, – once we got there, there was three factories coming together mm-hmm. and uh, we quickly formed the sh- uh, shop committee and uh, we then elected a number of other shop stewards and uh, just as well we did because um, uh, that was early 62 and we walked into that factory um, – and uh, by May 62, we were in a big dispute about equal pay. The uh, company intended uh, to bring in women doing the same job as the men uh, for 75% of the rate. Mm. And uh, we um, made it clear, and, uh, and the members were 100% behind us, uh, including some groupers who worked there who were very good in this dispute, uh, that uh, nobody would be coming in less than the, than the rate we'd been negotiated, and the company thought we were um, uh, f- uh, kidding them. And uh, but we were very powerful, and we had a terrific uh, leader, Rip Amfer, who was quite a character, and uh, that, our members loved him. And uh, he, he once he got fired up, uh, and then of course, what the company didn't know is that the they'd sacked the manager at the end of the year before we moved out there. He was a great guy, Dick May. He was even in the union yeah, as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got he got the sack because he was too close to the unions yes, and the right. workforce. Yeah. But what had happened, he'd opened a uh, what we then called a ham and beef shop oh, up, in, right. <laughs> up in Bell Street, right yeah. near where I, I was living at the time when uh, uh, first was married. And um, we'd gather in his ham and beef shop, uh, yeah. like you do with a hairdresser, you know, we'd yeah, sit yeah, around yeah. and talk. talk. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, he was getting all the inside information, information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from his colleagues. Next time we'd be in negotiations with the company, we'd say, well, first of all, we found out, that's how we found about the women. We were in there, cu- in there to discuss something else. At the end, we said, oh, by the way, we understand you're going to bring women in next week. Sweet. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And one thing, every time the negotiations, he'd make sure we had the latest what was happening. And they never t- twig where it was coming from. from. Right. And they'd get a hell of a shock. And uh, then one day they said, write this on. We're bringing uh, the, the women in. The, the British migrant hostel was right next door. Right. And we're bringing the women in next from next door and they're starting next week. And we said, uh, I think you might be having some trouble there. They said, Why? I said, well, we've been next door yeah. and we've had meetings with them and the women said there's no way they'll be starting. At 75%. <laughs> yeah. So I said, you can forget that. Well, I never forget. They were furious. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we finished up in a three-week dispute, which was uh, – then they pulled – the trades all came on side due to the very good work of Laurie Carmichael uh, to, because the trades hall was never known for its militancy. Yeah. But he was very uh, – good at working with people like Vic Stout and uh, finally the trade saw backed us to the hilt so they, then they ordered all CIG plants to stop work mm. uh, and we finally... Look, I, I, just, I just heard you mention the M word. 
you got married. You didn't tell us about this. What's going on here, Max? I <laughs> thought you were just straightened down trade unionist. You actually <laughs> did love enter your life or something. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I met a lovely woman called Margaret who was actually uh, the sister of John Halfpenny's wife of the time, Kathleen. And uh, uh, that we that lasted for about eight years. We had a lovely daughter, uh, Shana, who's still as lovely as ever. So um, I went to live in Heidelberg, and uh, the other thing I was doing, and I'd been playing football with Preston in the VFA. And uh, hang on, uh, hang on, you're, a, and, you're playing the VFA. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's and, pretty good. What what position did you play? Oh, usually centre or half back. Well, oh, I finished oh, up in the back oh. pocket, actually. Well, you still, was, you, you, although you're over eighty, you still look like the type of bloke I wouldn't <laughs> want to have a fist fight with. So, was there I, much biffing in those days in the VFA? Well, it was actually, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget one day lining up against Williamstown, and the captain coach is the toughest little bastard, and. Uh, he used he had played quite a few games at Footscray, and he kicked me in the ankle about four times before the ball was bounced. <laughs> but I was in and out of the side at, uh, at Preston and between the seniors and the reserves, and then we went to live in Heidelberg. So I went over. The captain of Preston had taken up the coaching job at Heidelberg, so he invited me to join him there, which I did, and uh, had a great few years with him, including winning a premiership, and I still go to watch him to this day. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> right, yeah. So, um, yeah, that we've, we won that dispute on the basis of the Commission, Industrial Relations Commission stepped in and told the company they weren't allowed to employ the women until such time as they'd negotiated with the unions on the principle of equal pay. Mm. So what happened then was uh, they had to have a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, so in the next year or two, they um, lifted all the third-class machinists onto second-class and then they brought the women in on third class. Oh, I mean, right. they were paying them the right rate. But it was 75% of the original, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, they were still far more than they would have been getting, getting otherwise. Price, but it was yeah. just a, you know, it was just in the finish, of course. That, yeah, yeah. That, but they just had to have some kind of victory. You know. So, 64, you left, what, the private sector? Uh, well, in 1965, um, I was still at CIG. Uh, by the way, that... Beautiful, brand new plant uh, didn't last thirty years. Right. All that work went overseas, mm. and uh, it was closed and then demolished. Mm. Uh, unbelievable. Um, mm. Anyway, uh, the union's national council, the, uh, the the AU as it was, still um, asked, would I go to uh, work in Algiers on the next World Youth Festival? Uh, I'd been to in 1959. I'd been to the World Youth Festival in Vienna. Um, on behalf of the union, what had happened? I was originally going to, I'd booked to to go to Britain and work for a couple of years, uh, and be booked on a ship, of course, in those days. And before I went, the union suggested that they would um, uh, add in some money to what I'd already spent, and if I instead went to the World Youth Festival, which, which involved a month travelling through China and on the Trans-Siberian Railway to. Um, uh, Vienna and so on. Did you, so, did, you, did you see much of China in '65? Well, this was '59. '59. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I spent so a what, month what, all what over you, the place. What did you think? Well, at the time, of course, um, uh, it was just so full of energy, uh, and uh, the kind of, everywhere you went, there was this enthusiasm for 
getting things done. We're just getting to the 10-year anniversary of of the uh, revolution. And um, But there was a few little things which, which uh, we found later, of course. For example, uh, we were uh, on the train coming into Wuhan. There's these little fires all around the mountain. And we said, what's those? And they said, oh, we've got all the local people uh, smelting. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, were, great, the Great Leap Forward. Yeah, yeah. the Great Leap Forward. And, uh, and Barry Blair's a great friend of mine who... Uh, who was a very smart in terms of trade and the like, he said to me, and then we talked about that, he said, that can't be very useful. Yeah. That can't be very good quality. Because we found out later that it was a disaster. Yeah, uh, people were the, working in agriculture. Yeah, and, and the, that's right. And the, all the stuff they made was useless. And, yeah. uh, so all that came out later. But, uh, but there was enthusiasm. That's what oh, absolutely. you remember. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's and, 10 years, uh, right. And, and some great young people were meeting. And, you, know, yeah. you really... In those days, you had a real. You came away with a real hope uh, right. that they were they were going to really go places. Well, of course, they have in many ways. Right, but yeah. In some ways, they've gone back the way we like. Yeah. yeah. So, Algiers. So you're talking about Algeria, are you? Yeah. Well, in '65, the Union uh, was supporting the next the World Youth Festival to be held there. Uh, of course, this is three years after, after they won, the, that's right. won independence. Yeah, it um, took a million dead to do that. Yes, exactly. And uh, so they asked if I would um, go to Algiers and work on the preparatory committee, which had people from all around the world. And my task was to oversight the um, the program for young workers at the festival, uh, which was. Um, Conferences of metal workers and carpenters and so on, visits to workplaces, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, we had some real big political battles with the Russians and the like there, um, because uh, Ben Ballerin invited the world, but when uh, we got there and I, I got there, one of my things was to check that this meant uh, Israeli youth as well, progressive Israeli youth. And uh, in the Finnish, uh, the Russians just said, oh, comrade, don't worry about that. Mm. And we said, well, you know, we're not going to be part of something that's discriminating. Mm. So in the Finnish, that became a really big issue. And the Italian guy who came, and myself and three or four others, we uh, went public and we said, unless we get a statement from the um, preparatory committee that they're not responsible for the progressive Israeli youth able to come, and it's been the Algerian government's fault, uh, we could be walking out. And, of course, it was becoming quite a big thing with the press, so they were, they were milling around when we had the meeting, and the Russians were furious, And so, but they had to do that in the yeah. finish. Mm-hmm. So well, was, what was life like in Algeria in '65? Look, it was, uh, again, uh, I was there for about six months with my wife, and uh, uh, it was, um, again, you got a real feel of, of enthusiasm. There was uh, a lot of... A lot of things going on. One of the things very noticeable, a lot of women were no longer wearing the hijab and all of that. Um, and uh, you, you, again, you got this feel of real hustle and bustle. And, uh, and the people we worked with, the Algerians we worked with, some extraordinary young people who had actually led small militia cells, you know, and, and, had, and had actually killed the French. And, uh, and they'd relate some of these stories at night over, over a drink and the like. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, it was looking uh, pretty good. But there was a bit of a problem we, we twigged beginning to emerge. Ben Bella, uh, in fact, we were debating the issue about 
you can have a revolution. Um, the problem is it's pretty rare that the person who leads the revolution is very good at governing. That's right. And Ben Bella was a classic case. He was yeah. he helped the revolution. He, he used to rob banks and give the money for, for the purposes of funding the. Um, yeah. you know, he did all sorts of things like that. But in, when he was the president, we met him a couple of times. A very shy guy, and he, he refused to live in the palace. Uh, and also, you'd see him, um, he'd be getting around Algiers in a little battered old VW. Mm. Uh, and he loved football. He was <laughs> always photographed at the football. And, uh, but the other problem was he was bringing in um, uh, a lot of European advisors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, a lot of the people around him started to not like this too much, mm-hmm. with yeah. some justification. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then, of course, one night uh, there was a, we heard this firing and, and the like. Uh, and it turned out um, there was a coup. Uh, and uh, we woke up on a Saturday morning <coughs> and there was troops everywhere. Um, and uh, we were okay. Uh, we were on good papers and the like, but some of our colleagues, particularly from Latin America, were on false Cuban papers because, yes. because mm-hmm. their countries were were um, under military dictatorship and the like. So they all had to make a beeline for the Cuban embassy, but we wandered downtown and were able to, to um, uh, sort of, see what was going on uh, and of course it turned out naturally we thought it was a right wing coup but uh, it was much more complex than that we learnt later that uh, as things unfolded it was a group of people who who were, who they called themselves socialists but they wanted Arab socialism mm. whatever that meant pa- pan-nationalism and, yeah. they, and they didn't want uh, yeah. what was ha- what was being offered them from Europe yeah, yeah. So. it was a big big movement then um, Pan-Arabic nationalism. Something like that. Yeah, yeah the Egypt, uh, Jordan, all those yeah. countries which have overthrown monarchies or colonial rulers. Yeah. So when you left, did you actually have the world you... No, no. no, it, no. Be, because what happened was uh, we all went into hiding from... All, all our, our Algerian colleagues went into hiding and then for a couple of weeks... We we wasn't much we could do, so we were just going to the beach every day. <laughs> we could they wouldn't let us out. No, nah. uh, but uh, finally we were able to have a secret meeting with them all, and uh, we agreed that. Um, oh, that, and the Chinese refused to be part of the whole thing, and but they was they were there. They were always yeah. trying to do deals behind the scenes, or they're not part of it. So all of a sudden they started knocking on the door and saying, "Oh, comrade, you know we can uh, we can help run the festival." And we said, "Hang on a minute." Uh, it's a matter of principle. Ben Baller uh, was the one who invited us here, and yes. now he's under arrest. Uh, there's no way we'll go ahead with the festival if he's yeah. in jail. Yeah. And, of course, then the people who'd taken over, Bermidian, I think, he's had his people come and meet with us, and, and we said no, because it, it would have been a real feather in the cap for him to have 18,000 people yeah. come into Algiers. But uh, we made it clear that there's no way we would go ahead with a festival on the basis of uh, Ben Bella being in jail. Mm. So uh, then they gave us a bit of a rough time, actually. I could imagine, yeah. And, and they made it very difficult for us to get out. We, we I assume, I assume uh, there wouldn't have been an Australian embassy in Algeria, was no, there? No, no. no. So uh, was there a British embassy? Um, yes, yes. Were they any assistance to get get out, or did you just get out on your own? Oh, look, we did it on our own, basically. We, own. We, it, we were going to look for some assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, during that period, by the way, was um, the 20th anniversary of the end of the war, 
So we were getting uh, invites to a number of the embassies to uh, celebrate that. and we loved it because the food and drink was fantastic. So. <laughs> Get amazing. And because we were very – we weren't paid very well uh, uh, working with a festival, which was uh, appropriate. We didn't expect to. Uh, and we couldn't afford any good food. So what did you, we grabbed these invites. Uh, yeah, look, Max, what did your wife think of all this, that you've taken her this hell hole? <laughs> oh, no, she – she was a big experience for her. We found her and she had a, bit, a job in the uh, in the office um, right. that she did a lot of work in. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't paid, uh, yeah, right. but uh, between us, yeah, it was a great experience. Right. So you returned back to Australia? Uh, no, um, not immediately. We went all went to um, uh, Finland to have a, a meeting then of everybody to determine what would happen. And so the festival was put off. It wasn't held for another few years. But while I was there, the... Uh, the Russians invited me, to uh, Margaret and I, to spend three weeks on a sort of a study tour. I mean, I'd been there before, but only on, on the train going through. Right. So, uh, yeah, they took us all around uh, in an extraordinary uh, tour. Um, but uh, it was then I really started to have some worries about, about the Soviet Union. Uh, Khrushchev by then had been dismissed um, and the... And whenever we talked about it, the um, excuses they gave were just ridiculous. And uh, increasingly, we, with the people we were working with, some young people, uh, and it was clear that they were spying on us. And when we'd be up in our hotel room, and if we wanted to talk about, you know, what was really going on, for example, uh, somebody would say, "Well, take the phone off the hook first and mm-hmm. uh, and they'd say how these are good young people, yeah. and they'd say how. Um, yeah, they weren't allowed to do heaps of things yeah. and so on. So oh. it was a, it was um, a very interesting tour. But yeah, I, I came away pretty concerned about some of the things. So, so you were still a member of the Communist Party then? Oh yes, yes. yes. I joined. I joined in fifty nine. Fifty nine, and uh, was that one of the experiences that made you question everything? Or oh yes, yes, uh, and of course the discussions and the debates we were having in in the Communist Party about. Uh, Democracy and that kind of stuff. Um, by which time, I, you know, uh, I was been uh, elected to the state committee, and then in '67 I was on the national committee. Um, and uh, of course, we got very excited about uh, the Dubček uh, year, and uh, that uh, we really were following that closely. And, of course, that was leading to quite strong debates where uh, within the Communist Party and, and beyond, uh, in the left and the labor movement generally, it was dividing into those who uh, who uh, didn't um, support that mm. democratic opening. And, of course, once the Warsaw Pact uh, uh, invaded, well, you know, that was the end. That was uh, the end, basically. Yeah. In fact, I was, by pure chance, I was one of the early ones to find out about it because my... Dear friend Barry Blairs was working for the World Federation Democratic Youth at the time, and he rang. He was in in, in Budapest, and he rang me to tell me about two in the morning. Uh, I heard, and, and I actually cried. Um, and I thought, well, that's the end of that because mm. we were so excited. So mm. Um, mm. now, I because the Communist Party took a stand straight away without hesitation, uh, condemning. Uh, the invasion and all of that. I, I, along with a lot of others, stayed in the Communist Party because it was mm. we had been arguing and, and developing. In fact, eventually, I mean, the, 
particularly from the early 70s on, we became a very democratic party. Uh, and uh, and then there was a whole lot, about 20% left because they were supporting the Russians. You know. mm. uh, did, so did you stay till, to the end in the Communist Not till the end, no. Uh, by about 82, uh, I was getting to the stage of thinking, well, I mean, we were unusual around the world where we had a very significant influence in the union movement, uh, which was quite appreciated by a lot on the left and the Labor Party who would seek our uh, our view and, and advice and the like. And um, But I was going to leave in 82, but I was persuaded by my dear colleague Bernie Taft to uh, not just do that, that when we do it, we should go out as, a, as an organised group and, right. and not just in terms of... Which we finally did in 84. Nearly all the Victorian leadership and some from New South Wales, we all left... Uh, and set up the Socialist Forum, uh, right. which had an office just not far from here. But, mm. Uh, mm. yeah. Uh, okay. So had you retired by then? Or were you still working in 84? Oh, yes, I was still working in 84. I'd, uh, I'd be, uh, I became the, uh, the, a, the AMW, as we were then, uh, education officer, full-time education officer in, 80, in 73. Mm. Um and which is a job I really loved. It was uh, the first time that we developed proper organised education for our shop stewards. Uh, and um, we had, by 75, we had a full-time education office in every state and uh, it was a great experience. Um, and uh, then in 84, the union asked me to go into the national office to... Um, to become, uh, to do work around industrial democracy, mm. to try and, uh, and help with negotiations to increase uh, our members' power in the workplace in various ways, in work systems and the like. Mm. Um, so I did that uh, in the national office till about 88 or 89, and when uh, Larry Carmichael by that time was at the ACTU, and him and Bill County then. Uh, invited me to the ACT to do similar kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did you retire? Uh, oh, it must have been about 2005 or something. 2005. So you worked up till 2005? Yeah, I, I, I went because uh, what happened was uh, I left the ACT in 2000 and we got some funding from the state government to establish – uh, a unit called the Foundation for Sustainable Economic mm. Development right. within the Department of Management at Melbourne University, mm. and uh, under. Um, so uh, the boy who went to TAFE is now at Melbourne University teaching. Well, <laughs> it was really like strange. It. I had this little. I was head of this little research unit <laughs> under the leadership of Danny Sampson, who was uh, a professor and a very fine person. So yeah, that was it's uh, full quite circle. It's quite ironic, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> now I understand you've been. Uh, over the uh, since you've retired, you've been uh, jotting down a few thoughts. Is that correct? Some little birdie told me you've been doing a bit of writing behind the scenes. Yeah, well, I started writing some uh, short stories. And what started it was that that strike, the Eagle Pay strike, because uh, it was um, the biggest and longest strike ever in Australia for equal pay. And um, and I it, for years I uh, thought, how can I write this up so it's not a boring labour history? as labour history can be, and uh, although sometimes it's done very colourfully, like bitter fight, you know. Yes. 
Um, and then one day it suddenly came to me I would uh, write the short story, uh, or as it turned out, uh, uh, 11,000 or 12,000 words short story. <laughs> yeah. I'd put uh, Aunt Rube Amfer, our convener of stewards, uh, at the middle of it and tell it through through him because he was mm. such a colourful character and that then gave me the hook to uh, to really get stuck into it um, so that was and I had that that was published in a couple of places and then uh, I wrote a few other short stories uh, about some of my uh, colourful colleagues in the union and so on and then uh, then when I started thinking about writing that uh, and then I showed that to Ann Polis and one or two others and uh, that led me to sort of starting to write it down because I've since I uh, did that and then I fitted the short stories into the book um, where where you know chronologically they were appropriate and uh, and I have to say what happens now including just last night I was with some friends a uh, friend's place over dinner I drive people mad now to write down their stories. Mm, mm. Uh, what, you've finally realised you're not going to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> but look, wonderful anecdotes that a lot of ordinary yeah. people don't think yeah, think matter. much of. Yeah. And anyway, I'm getting a bit of a reputation now. And people start telling a story and they say, oh, Christ. He's going to write it down. <laughs> you're going to tell me to write it down. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I so and it's it's actually worked. A few people now have uh, gone back and after good stories, they've gone and written them. Uh, so, so how do you approach it? How do you approach it um, in terms of uh, what are you trying to say in those stories? Well, uh, mainly, uh, um, a, a lot of ordinary people have some such rich stories that, given the kind of culture in our society generally, they don't see as rich or important mm. and uh, and and yet um they are uh and uh, that's really what I want what and I think help and help pe- people get some confidence in their mm. own stories mm. and some of them are fabulous stories yeah. and uh, and until you point out you know how good it is and you say to them now you know you've got to I'm going to come back to you make sure you've written it yeah um and just Get it started. Just get it jotted down in the roughest old way, and then, then, because uh, mm. uh, you know, there's so many daily wonderful stories. So just, just last night at dinner at this friend's place, one of his sons, he's, he's not in his late forties now, I suppose. He told a great story of an experience he'd had. He's a teacher, and I said to him, uh, "Jolian, have you, have you written that down?" Mm. Mm. He said, "No, no." I said, "That's a great story." He said, "Oh, yeah." Uh, so, yeah, I think it's mm. so important. You said you've had some stuff published. How difficult is that? Well, in, in this case, it was uh, um, the... Uh, I'd had, I've had articles, and in one case, a chapter on new technology published uh, with a professor colleague of mine in the US, included in a book he wrote on new technology, and the odd... Uh, odd Lots of articles and the like over the years on you know in the left review and stuff like that and uh, but uh, with, when I wrote when I put the, the book together um, I hadn't assumed it would become a book I just thought I'd uh, write it mainly for my two daughters and particularly for the grandchildren. How, uh, how many grandkids you got? Max? Four. Yeah. Four. Oh, um, well. uh, yeah. 
So that was the main idea. And then when a couple of others um, uh, read it, uh, like Ann Polis and John Timlin, uh, suggesting that uh, it might have some some possibilities being published. Otherwise, that wasn't my intention to do that. So. Right. So has it been published? Yes, it was it was published last um, last uh, November. So what was what what what's it called? A long view from the left. A long view from the left, and is it uh, two thousand pages? <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, in the finish I left a few things out, yeah, a few well, anecdotes, but yeah. it's about 240 pages. Oh, it's, or a good, it's a good read then, yeah. Well, look, it's... Uh, Is it mainly short stories? It? No, no, no. no, it's no. A whole, what's I, it about? What's it about? Well, it's just about my life from when I... And, and starting with that uh, little story of how I came to get the name Max, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was... Uh, so it's an autobiography, is it? Yes, it's a memoir, and uh, but I've included the four short stories, or well, as I say, one of them's quite long, but uh, that's part of all of that. So, which publishers eventually uh, took the plunge? Uh, Bad Apple Press. Bad. Well, that's uh, that's. I think that's a reasonable uh, yeah. press to publish with, uh, Max. <laughs> I assume a lot of people would have thought of you as a bad apple during your <laughs> career in the trade union movement. Yeah, but, uh, no, they've been very good actually, and uh, I'm sure they're very good. Yeah, uh, uh, because a couple of others. Um, uh, thought it was worth publishing, but it wouldn't sell. Uh, uh, it's uh, we're all. There's been a couple of launches. Um, a couple of launches. Yeah, there's one online that right. uh, Bill Kelty launched uh, right. in, as part of the Search Foundation, uh, mm. and uh, there was Bill Shorten did a, a launch at uh, Glee Books online in, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there'll be oh, that's right. There was a smaller one at Castlemaine in that. Great bookshop up there, uh, and uh, and there's hopefully be one in the trades all uh, right, shortly. Sure, uh, this will be a real flesh to flesh launch. Or a, yeah, yeah, oh, well, that's yeah. the intention. Yeah, yeah so. well, p- please keep us informed about that, and we'll oh. let our listeners know. Yeah, certainly, I'm will. sure yeah. they'd like yeah. to. So, you've been on the planet a long time. You've done a lot of things. You're a family man. You're a you know trade unionist, a, a worker, an academic, a writer. And a passionate jazz lover. <laughs> and a passionate... Oh, well, we'll, and, forgive, we'll forgive you for that. <laughs> I assume you listen to the jazz program here, the jazz programs on 3CR. Now and again. Now yeah, and again, but, yeah. Look, uh, they're, they're divided, you know. They're, they're more divided than a group of Trotskists. You oh, I can understand that, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this trad jazz, this yeah, jazz. Yeah. Well, I've interviewed a few jazz people and, oh, that's it. Yeah. They, they do my head in. <laughs> you got any advice for anybody listening, younger people? Well, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, what, what strikes me about younger people today, all those I know, particularly, say, uh, my two daughters' friends as they've been growing up and the like, um, great young people. But one of the things that strikes me is they're, they're not a generation of joiners. Uh, they've got great view about the world and good politics and really thinkers, Um but they don't seem to join like we did when we were younger uh, and sort of be active in something. It's um, uh, one of the advice I have, if anybody's uh, thinking about how the world should be a better place, and it certainly should be, there's so much wrong with it, uh, that uh, it's terribly important that they join an organisation and uh, and become part of trying to do something. It's one thing to think something needs improving and then another thing to do something about it. Max, that's sacrilege. 
that is total sacrilege. This is the age of click activism. You like something on the internet, you press a button, yeah. you think you've solved the world's problems. You, don't, you reckon it doesn't work that way? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's uh, funny. It's, we've, been, uh, we've been going, there's a group of us been going to the Standard Hotel uh, after work for, uh, since about 1977, 78. We oh, still, that is a club. We still do. And, and what we do every week, we talk about the films we've seen, uh, the books we're reading, and, and we sol- solve the world's problems right. every Friday night. Every Friday night. And then the next Friday we go back and do it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it's, uh, look, it's a real problem. I agree. I agree. I mean, I mean... <sighs> I do more organising now than I've ever done in my life with less rewards than when we didn't have the World Wide Web and uh, social media. And I think a lot of people get this false sense of that they've done something if they've seen something and they've clicked on a button. And you're quite right, it's very difficult to get people to join anything. Except now where it's very heartening to see the movement, uh, particularly young people in the schools around climate change. Yeah, and the climate uh, extinction people. Yeah. And all of those, it's, that's very heartening and even mm. exciting. And I know there's, there's going to be big action again shortly, led by those people. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing... Look, everything else pales into insignificance compared with climate change. Um, but then, of course, uh, that then includes things like... Um, uh, the inequalities in society and the and the need to save our democracy, which is under such incredible threat. Um, so it's very heartening to see that movement, and and from day one be a, a big global movement um, that uh, uh, and it's so desperate. I mean, uh, at the moment I'm not my, my, and my book uh, doesn't finish on a terribly optimistic note because I, I it's not just about in the last chapter or two I try and reflect on my lessons, both good and bad that um, that I can and others might take out of it uh, and I must say it's it's not a very optimistic uh, part of the book but it's I've, I've tried to be well, is, realistic. But is there any hope? I mean you don't have to be optimistic to be hopeful. Well you're always hopeful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean as I say when you see some of these young people now merging around the, the, the key issue of our time uh, mm. that gives you some hope uh, well look I'm very hopeful because like you said there is a new generation it reminds me of the 1920s you know uh, there was this new generation and in the 1960s and I think it's time for another group like that to uh, shake up the world and I think uh, because people I think younger people are realizing they've got little future or no future most of them in this country and around the world that maybe we will get that new generation that will just come out of left field yeah. and we, we will we weren't expecting it, you know. And maybe they will take your advice. They need to join things and become active. Yes, if one that was, was very noticeable is uh, before I fit, went, went to work for the union, then the last three or four years, I was a fitter and turner at Melbourne University. Well, they called us technical officers, but we were fitter and turner. In, and that was in the late 60s and the first couple of years of the 70s. And what struck me at the time was the huge amount of student activity. Yeah, the yeah. times of the anti-Vietnam War movement. There was something on every day. That's right. Uh, yeah. But um, and then in the period that I worked back there, as in the in that little unit from two thousand for th- four or five years, uh, all of that was gone. Oh, yeah. It was hardly anything. Well, Max, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think uh, people um, uh, should uh, take heed of your experiences, and I think with people like you in this country, we've got nothing to be frightened of.
I'm optimistic and hopeful. That's good to hear. <laughs> Thank you, Max. Thank you. <laughs> Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, Community Powered Radio. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.